All right, well, good morning. Man, we could not have sung better songs, I'm not going to lie. It fired me up. Yeah, that's right. It's okay. It's good. I'm going to talk extra fast. Just kidding. Actually, I probably will. I can't control it. Sorry. I'm just excited, man. I'm excited. I'm excited to worship with you guys. I love hearing you singing. It makes me happy. I love what the Lord is doing here in this church and in this community. And it's a joy and a privilege. It's, frankly, it's a humbling honor to be a part of that. It's amazing, and you're a part of that. So be blessed by that. Take advantage of that. All right, well, today we're going to continue with a study of Jesus' parables, and we started that last week, and I kind of explained what that is. So Jesus has these stories in which he has this paradigm-shifting, life-transforming, eternally powerful, penetrating point to make, and he uses the power of story to make it. Why? Because he wants it to be made in the most powerful fashion possible, and stories, what do they do? They disarm us. They draw us in. They carry us along, sort of like a log floating down a moving river. You know, it's just, it's effortless. They're just bringing us with it. And here's what happens with these stories. The point of the story that Jesus is trying to make is made with us before we even realize that it's made with us. And it's made in a way that cannot be unmade because by the time we get to the end and Jesus drops the mic, our hearts have already 100% agreed and bought into everything he said, whether we like it or not. It's like, yeah, okay, you got me with that one. And this is one to love. So the point that Jesus is going to make with you, let's make it personal, okay, with me also. But like the point that Jesus is going to make with you today is that God does not want you as his servant. And I want to stop there for a second. I want you to think about that for a minute. God isn't hiring for God Incorporated. You know, he's not like hoping you'll come in and apply. Oh, we're going to send you down to HR. You got to fill out some paperwork. You know, we're going to do like a 90-day trial period. And if at the end of 90 days, we like you and you like us, then we'll hire you on permanent. It's no, 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 no. He's not looking for people who serve him for a paycheck. He's looking for people who serve him out of devotion to him, out of love for him, out of affection for him, out of passion for him and for his mission. Not as those who serve him so that they can get something from him in the end. You know, it's sort of like, well, God, and we do this subconsciously, and we're all guilty on some level, so there you go. But we say, you know, Lord, I I do my personal worship every day. I pray on my knees. I serve at church. I serve in the community. I give money to this and to this and to this and to this. And I, you know, I'd be open to doing a little bit more. Like there was that time and this week that I helped that lady across the street. And then 20 years ago, I stopped and I helped some guy change a tire. And like, I mean, I've done all of these things. And here is why. Because I've got these certain things that I want to see happen with my kids. And I, I got this stuff that I desires for my marriage. And I, I have like these health things that I'd like to see happen in my life or that person's life or these people's lives. I have this stuff for my business that I want to see transformed and, and happen. And, and I have done all of these things in truth, God, because I'm hoping that I can cash the check. Like I'm hoping that I'll obligate you to do this and to do this and to do this and to do this for me. And you're like, oh, I would never do that. Okay, well, here's a test. The test is if when life does not go for you the way that you want it to. In fact, very much the opposite. You get angry with God. Why? Because you feel like you deserve better. Well, why would you deserve better? Well, because you do this and you do this and you do this. God, I mean, I've been working. Where's the paycheck? All right, so I got some good news for you. God does not want you as his servant. He's not trying to hire you as his employee. God wants you as his son or as his daughter. So now here's what starts happening in some people's minds at this point. 
You start thinking to yourself, at least some of you, hey, you know what, Tom, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what kind of a life I've lived. You know, maybe God wants you or maybe that person who greeted me at the door or Ryan who was up here and the team and some of the folks in the room, maybe God wants them as his people, as his family, but surely he doesn't want me. So the last part of the point, the largest thrust in many ways of the three stories we'll look at is that God doesn't want you as a servant. He wants you as a son or daughter and that that's true no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. So let's jump in. We find our story today in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, where Luke says this. He says, now the tax collectors and the sinners, we got to stop and develop that. Like, who are those guys? They are the really, really bad people. They are the please don't touch me people. They are the I don't want to be seen with you people. They are don't talk to me in public people. They are the I am massively offended by you people. They are the people that if they had taken a poll back in the days of Jesus, everybody would have universally agreed are the people of lowest value in the community. In fact, they would have said, no, no, these are people of negative value in the community. In other words, they are that we would all be better off without them people. But what are they doing? It says now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, who unlike literally everyone else in their day and in their culture, embraced them, received them, identified with them. As we'll see in a minute, he invited them to his table. What in the world? He loved them. And then he took criticism for doing it. And notice from whom? Luke immediately says, and the Pharisees and the scribes, we'll put them over here, who, by the way, would have universally won the MVP award. It's like, oh, yeah, they're the ones that I want to hang out with. They're the ones I want to talk to. They're the ones that would be good for my reputation to be seen with. They are the most valuable people in our culture and society. The Pharisees and scribes grumbled against Jesus, saying, this man, Jesus, receives these filthy, wicked, valueless, negative value people, sinners, and he eats with them. Well, what's the big deal about that? It's not a big deal today. You know, like, I mean, if after church we said, hey, you know, let's go grab lunch, you know, like on Tuesday or whatever, and we went and had lunch together on Tuesday, I've never met you before in my life, and maybe you've never met me before in your life. You're not worried about your reputation. I mean, I don't know, I'm a pastor, so it can get weird at times, but... But really, like, I, I'm not worried about mine. You know, I mean, there's nothing customary or social. There's no expectations. These people were super careful about who they ate with. If you invited someone to your home, you were making a statement publicly about how you felt about that person. You thought carefully about it. You managed that, that perception in the community. Because when you invited them into the home and they walked across the threshold of your door and they found their honored place as a guest at your table, you're saying, I'm family with them. I'm one with them. I'm identifying with them. What is Jesus doing here? He's identifying with tax collectors and sinners and who's upset? The so-called really, really good people. I mean, let's just set it up. So we got these guys over here. We got the tax collectors and sinners. We have Jesus, his table in the middle, Pharisees scribes, and they're none too happy with Christ. So he tells them, you see the language? This parable in response to their criticism. The first of three says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, 
does not leave the 99 in the open country with another shepherd. The sheep are fine. He doesn't abandon them. Okay, that's not the idea. But he leaves the 99 in the care of another shepherd, and they're going to be good. They're in the fold in the open country, and then do what? Go after the one that is lost. Until when? Until he gets tired? Until it gets dark? Until he gets hungry? Till he gets frustrated, till he says, hey, you know what? I've looked for this sheep like, I don't know, what is this like the ninth time this guy's wandered off? Not worth it anymore. He's just one of a hundred. We don't need him. It's not what a good shepherd does. He searches and he searches and he searches until he has found it. And then what does he do? He gives it a map and says, here, find your way home. I mean, obviously you're lost. You need some help. He gives him directions. He said, look, half mile down the road, there's a yellow house. There's a, like a little trail right next to Just pass the house, take a left, take the trail. That's going to get you most of the way there. If you get out, you know, just ask somebody that can get you there. No. He calls somebody. You know, obviously there's some ministry out there that deals with wayward sheep, right? So, I mean, he just gives him a call. He said, look, I think I found a wayward sheep. He's at the corner of wayward and really, really dumb street. And I've tied him to the street sign. Come get him. No, he calls him an Uber because he doesn't want this stinky, smelly sheep in his, frankly, really nice car. No. When a sheep would get lost, when a sheep gets lost, it lays down on the ground in the dirt. It's wandered through all the brambles and the bushes and it's gathered up the bugs and the filth. It realizes it's lost. It just collapses and waits. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't go anywhere. So what does the shepherd do? He gets down in the dirt with the sheep. He gets his arms up under this filthy, stinky, bug-infested you know, sheep. And then he carries it up. And Jesus says he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And then when he comes home, what does he do? There's a party. He calls together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus stops and he looks at these guys, Pharisees, scribes. He's like, you're critical of me. You're criticizing me for going after the lost sheep. You should be rejoicing when I find these people. And now you're just like, you know, criticizing me and, and, and taking shots at me and, and continuing to despise them and wishing they weren't even a part of our community. They're negative value people to you. So let me do what only I can do because I'm the man from heaven. Jesus reaches up and he throws open the curtains of heaven and says, your quarrel is not with me, it's with heaven. Look. He says, so I tell you, there will be more joy, where? In heaven, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And oh, by the way, if Pharisee and tax collector or Pharisee and scribe, that isn't enough for you. You got you to know this. God doesn't want them as his servants. He, he wants them at his table, as sons, as daughters. So if you were offended before, They're still not getting it. He goes story number two. Verse eight. He just continues. He says, or what woman having what? A hundred coins? No, 10 silver coins. If she loses a coin, do you see what he just did? He starts with one out of a hundred that's lost. Now he's going to one out of 10 that's lost. In a minute, he's going to go to one out of two or really two out of two, but only one obviously that's lost. And that which is rare is more valuable. And so story by story, he is increasing the value of that which is lost. He says, what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she gets tired, until she runs out of patience, until she says, ah, you know, it's just one stupid coin. No, until she finds it. Why? Because that coin is precious. And that's true, by the way, no matter where it's rolled off to and no matter what it's rolled off through. That's respected. Of course she looks for it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for for I have found the coin that I had lost. And again, he looks at these guys and goes, You're critical of me. But I'm I'm like that woman. Like, I'm turning over the couch. Like, I'm looking in between the cushions. You find all kinds of stuff there. Like, I'm pulling the furniture away from the walls. I'm sweeping the floors. I'm looking for that which is precious that you don't agree is precious. But let me show you heaven. What's the opinion of heaven? Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So let's rehearse for a second. Why are these guys, the Pharisees and the scribes, upset with Jesus? They're upset with Jesus because they're watching Jesus invite these people, the the tax collectors, the sinners, which was like a broad category, like all kinds of people fit into that. And they knew who they were because everyone told them. He's saying that effectively they can have a seat at the table of Father God. And these guys are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hang on a second, because only we deserve that. I mean, just look at their lives. Jesus, full of disobedience, full of obedience, right? Full of unholy behavior, full of, at least apparently, holy behavior. And what you're telling these people and everyone else who is listening to you in our culture is that they are going to receive what only we deserve because of our work. Can't you, Jesus, see how insulting that is? It just diminishes everything that we're trying to do here. I've been at this for 30 years, and you're telling me that guy who's been at something else for 30 years gets to sit next to me? He doesn't even believe, he shouldn't be in the same county as me. But what does this betray in the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribe? It betrays the heart of a son? No. Betrays the heart of a servant, of somebody who's serving God, yes, but not out of love and not out of devotion and not out of affection and not out of a passion for God and for his mission and just overwhelmed by his greatness and his goodness. How could I not serve you? But as somebody who is serving for a paycheck, I'm an employee, I'm a servant. And I'm expecting that at the end of the road, I'm going to cash in. But God doesn't want you as a servant. He wants you as a son or daughter. And that's true no matter who you are or what you've done. And at the end of the third story, you'll realize that these guys are the ones who prove that best. It's remarkable. So Jesus gives them a third story, and it's the most famous story. It's one of the most famous stories ever told, and you probably have heard it, but it's the story of a father who is obviously a picture of God, and he has two sons. He has a younger son who is a picture of the tax collector and sinners. And he has an older son who's dutiful and obedient. He's a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes to whom Jesus is telling this story. They're the target. And the rebellious son does what rebellious sons do. So he comes to his father, and within the culture that this happens in, this is an outrage. 
When Jesus says this, the crowd that he's speaking to is is appalled. Like they gasp out loud. Like we know this is offensive, but to them, they saw the depth of this. He comes to his dad and says, look, I don't want to be your son. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. I don't. I want to go have a party and I want to get the heck out of here. I don't want to do it in your presence. I don't want you to be a witness to this. You're just going to be a buzzkill. I don't want you around. I just want you to die and give to me my share of your estate so that I can sell it off here in the village, liquidate the assets, take the money, go somewhere else, and chase after life there. But since you're not apparently going to die anytime soon, why don't we do this? Let's pretend like you just died. Give me my share of your estate. I'll liquidate it. I'll go find the party. And here's what everybody listening to the story when Jesus is telling it originally, and every character, by the way, also in that story, would have expected the father then to do. They would have expected the father to rebuke the son, to like hammer the son, like to beat the son, to put the son in his place, to kick his butt back out into the fields and say, get to work, shape up, and stop thinking like this. But if he does that, He'll only ever be a servant. Resentfully, you know, kind of doing what he has to do to sort of make it as a servant day by day by day, waiting for what? His father to die. So he's working away, waiting for dad to die until finally dad dies. He can liquidate his part of the estate and go find what he's looking for anyway. And dad doesn't want him as a servant. Dad wants him as a son. So Stunningly, and to the outrage of the entire community, the whole village, Dad says, okay, I'll do it. Here, this is your portion of my estate. And then the son sells it off. The family homestead is precious. He treats it with disdain. And not one person in the village does not want to kick his butt. They are all of them disgusted. They are all of them shamed and offended. He takes the money, he leaves, he goes to the far country. The party is on until he runs out of money and then famine hits the far country. So it's sort of the double whammy and he's looking around going, what are my options, right? And then he, so he attaches himself to a Gentile pig farmer. I mean, it's difficult for us to understand how low that is for a young Jewish man who comes from a noble family. And even then he's starving. He wakes up one day and he says, you know, I don't need to do this. Like, I'm, I'm, if I stay here, I'm just going to die. Like, I am starving in this land. This is not working out for me. I don't have to do it. Why? Because my, my, I can go home. I mean, I, I have a father and he's a good man and he has lots of servants. Servants. And if I go back, I can just ask him to take me back, not as a son, but as a servant. And he'll pay me a daily wage and I'll get an apartment in town and I'll just, I'll make it, you know, like I'll survive and I won't starve. Like I'm desperate. And that's where we go. I have hit rock bottom. And so he gets up, he turns his back on the far country and he starts coming home. And what is he thinking about? He's thinking, what kind of a reception am I going to get? Actually, I think he knows the answer to that. And not just from his dad. He actually doesn't know the answer to that. He's worried about the reception he's going to get from the community. Because the community is outraged that he's done this. And don't you think word has made it back? Hey, younger son, he's about out of money. I mean, people travel back and forth. Ran into the younger son. Yeah, he's got no money. Word of his failure has made it back. Word that he 
has been working for a Gentile pig farmer has made it back. And they're all looking for him at this point. Because they know, like at some point, like any day, he's going to wake up in the pigsty and go, okay, I've hit rock bottom now and I'm going to turn my heart toward home because I have literally no other choice other than death. So each day they're like, hmm, I wonder if today's the day. And dad knows too. This boy knows that as soon as he is seen on the horizon, a mob is going to form in the village. And he, to get to dad, is going to have to run the gauntlet of the mob. And the mob is going to spit on him. The mob is going to ridicule him. The mob is going to insult him. The mob is going to humiliate him. And the mob is going to beat him. And dad knows that's coming as well. So sure enough, when he is seen on the horizon, word spreads through the village and the village turns out. And by the way, dad lives in the village. It's not like he's out in some farm in the middle of nowhere and his closest neighbor is five miles away. They live next to each other. Word spreads through the village. Hey, wayward boy is on his way. And the mob begins to form at the gateway, if you will, the entrance to the village. And dad too realizes, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. And here comes the mob and he sees his son in the distance. And what is he going to do? Is he going to let him run the gauntlet of the mob, fall at his feet, kiss his hand or his feet as a servant? Or is he going to ask him to be his son? Will he pursue him with that kind of love? So what does dad do? He reaches down and he grabs his long flowing robes. And he does something that no dignified man in that culture, in that day, in that age would do. He, he bears his legs, ties it off, tucks it in his belt. And then he does a second thing that no dignified man would do in that day. He runs. And where does he run? Around the house and around the outside of the... No. He wants his son to see it, to be overwhelmed by his love, to realize what he's calling him to. He runs through the mob. In other words, he takes upon himself the humiliation of his son and runs the gauntlet of the whole mob in the place of his son to get to his son before the son gets to the mob. And before his son can drop onto his knees and kiss his feet and his hands and say, you know, I, I just want to be your servant, he grabs his son and he kisses his son, which in that culture expressed forgiveness, it expressed acceptance, and the words that's used would make it clear that he doesn't do it like once or twice and go, okay, did anybody get a picture of that? Like, I mean, you all saw that, right? Like, he just kisses his son again and again. I accept you. I love you. I'm one with you. I take you back. I accept you. We're good. I forgive you. It just showers him with kisses. And if that's not enough, he then calls his actual servants and he says, put shoes on these feet. I know they faithlessly ran from me and from all of you people. Put shoes on his feet. Why does that matter? Because in the household of the master, the servants were barefoot. Sons wore shoes. He says, go find my best robe, my best robe. 
So that when you people see my son, and for that matter, when my son looks in the mirror and he sees himself, he sees a reflection of me, of my purity, cover over all the vestiges of the far country with my robe. Go find that ring that my son took off, the ring of sonship, and threw over his shoulder as he walked off the property. And we found it three days later with a you know, metal detector in the mud. And then we cleaned it up. And, I, and then I put it in my safe, waiting for this moment. Go get that out of the safe. Bring it over. The ring of sonship. I want you to put it on his hand and kill the fatted calf. Okay, the fatted calf is cool. I mean, unless you're the fatted calf, this is cool. Why is it cool? I mean, normally they would do this with a sheep, but he's going to throw a banquet and he's inviting the whole village. Everybody's coming, so he needs a bigger animal. In this custom and tradition, they would take the animal that they were then going to eat And before the honored guest enters into the house, this is a little nasty, but it's true. They would slaughter it at the threshold of the door and they would cover the threshold of the door with the blood of the animal whose life is sacrificed that they might all feast at the father's table. And then he would invite the honored guest to step across the bloody threshold into the home of the father in this instance. And in doing so, he's saying to that person and to the whole community, I am forming a blood covenant with you by which we are one. You're the honored guest. Have a seat at my table. Whoa. Remarkable. He will not have him as a servant. He will have him only as a son. But what about the other son? the one that represents the Pharisees and the scribes, where is he? I want you to see the parallels. He too is away from home and he's walking back. Interesting. Now he's not coming back from the far country. Granted, he's coming in from out of the fields and he's stunned to hear music coming out of, I mean, his father's house. Like what the heck, you know, what's going on? He sees the cars parked all over the place. In those days, all the adults would come into the house and had a big courtyard and all the kids would stay outside, praise Jesus, right? And then they played together. They could come in and get food and they'd go out and they loved it. It worked for everybody, like everybody enjoyed it. And he sees the kids playing and he realizes, grief, the whole village is at our house. Like what's going on? Calls one of the kids over and says, hey, what's the deal? And the kid says, you know, your brother, the wayward that, you know, spit in the face, the liquidate the assets, the far country, the... You know, the pig farmer, that guy, he came back. This was the day we've been waiting for. You're not going to believe what your dad did. The mob formed, he ran the gauntlet. He shamed himself, the bare legs, the running, the whole deal. He kissed him again and again. He, He said, get the shoes and get the robe and get the ring, the fatted calf. He pulled that dude out right across the threshold. He shed its blood. He invited your brother to step over it. He made a blood covenant with your brother. He's received him home. Your brother is the honored guest of the feast that you're asking about. So what is the older Sunday? Because here's what he's expected to do at this point. He's expected to run in, to reveal that he too has the same heart as his father, to embrace his brother and offer him a couple extra robes from his closet Hey, man, I got a ring. You want to put this on your other hand? Like, uh, and here's three more extra pairs of shoes. Like, He's expected very significantly to take up his place as the oldest son in the household, as the co-host of the banquet in honor of his brother. 
And instead, he sends a message into dad. I'm not coming. This is ridiculous. And the word of this disgrace makes its way through the village, which is all in the house and the feast. And so he humiliates his father in front of the whole village. Now, what everybody who's listening to the story Jesus is telling and every character in the story and every person in that village now expects the father to do is to send a message back out to his son saying, you're going to get your butt in here and you're going to straighten out and you're going to do your duty as this host. You will not humiliate me before my friends and before this family. You will uphold our family name, get in here, do your duty, and we will talk it out later, which, by the way, he would have done. but he doesn't want him as a servant. And that's what he would have been. He will only ever have him as a son. So what does the father do for this wayward son? Same thing. He runs the gauntlet of the crowd. Excuse me, pardon me. Excuse me, pardon me. You're going to go talk to him. Excuse me, pardon me. And he goes out to this son and he pleads with him to come into the house, to take up his place as the the eldest son, to rejoice in the return of his brother. But this one is unmoved. Listen to what he says to his dad, verse 29. It says, he answered his father, look, these many years I have, what? Served you. And never disobeyed your command. Okay, but the question is why? I mean, did you do that out of love, out of affection, out of devotion, out of passion for your dad and for his business and for his mission and for none of that? He makes that incredibly clear. Listen to the resentment. Oh, you paid him? What's my work worth? He says, I have served you all these years. I've never disobeyed your command. And yet, you never gave me so much as a young goat that I might celebrate with who? With you, my father, because you're the joy and delight of my life. And of course, I would want to have you at my party now with my friends. He doesn't want his dad at the party. He wants his dad to die so that he can have the ability to dispose of the estate the way that he wants to. And he's just dutifully biding his time and and working away and waiting for the death of his father so that he might have the party with his friends that his heart desires. True, he doesn't go to the far country, but he's looking to bring the far country home. He's the same guy. Or is he? He says, look, you never gave me so much as a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this brother of, no. But when this son of yours, what has he just done? He's disowned his brother and he knows his father's made the blood covenant and the shoes and the ring and the, he's just disowned his father. I don't want to be your son. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Look, dad, let's look at it this way, okay? Full of disobedience, there's him. Full of obedience, there's me. And here's why I'm ticked and I want nothing to do with you. You gave him what only I deserve. And I deserve it based upon my work for you as a servant. But dad doesn't want him as a servant. He wants him as a son, and so he pleads with him. Dad, in verse 31, overlooks all of these insults, and he says to him, Son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Right? The rest of us, the state, that belongs to you. Your brother's been liquidated. He's... But you're wrong about all of this, for you see, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad when your brother came home. Wake up. Join the feast. Take up your position as my son and co-host. You're missing the boat for this, your brother, and that's who he is, was dead. But now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. End of story drops the mic. What is Jesus doing with this story? It's it's pretty amazing. I mean, if you think about it, he is pleading for the souls of the Pharisees and scribes, represented by the older brother. He is pleading, in other words, with these men who he knows are going to conspire together to have him murdered on a Roman cross. I'm pleading not just with tax collectors and sinners. I'm pleading with you guys who want to murder me. He calls these guys elsewhere in the New Testament. And listen, when, you know, when Jesus calls you a name, it's accurate. It's not done in malice. It's like, oh, let me tell you who you are. I'm, I'm being God and all. I'm going to be very direct and Accurate. He calls them a brood of vipers. He effectively calls them the sons of Satan. My goodness. Do you want to be a tax collector and sinner, or do you want to be one of these guys? He's calling both. He's saying, I call tax collectors and sinners, and I call... Pharisees and scribes, and I call everybody in between. It's an open offer. I don't want you as my servant. I want you as my son or as my daughter. And that is true no matter who you are and no matter what you've done. So I close with this. Are you a servant of God or are you one of his children? Or maybe a different way of saying it is, are you behaving more like a servant of God or as one of his sons and daughters? Because again, we all fall into this. And here again is how we know. It's like when life doesn't go the way we want, you know, the deal doesn't close and the doctor doesn't give us the right report and the marriage is still rough and the kid is still wayward and the whatever. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, how long are you going to... We're angry with God because we think we deserve better. And why would we deserve better if we didn't think that based upon kind of how we live and who we are and what we do? He's like, no, 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 no. I have something far better than that for you. I want you as my son or as my daughter. That's how you get to the table. The table is a family table. How do you make it to a table? Is it by working hard? I've worked 20 years for you. Now I expect to be written into your will. (laughs) Is that the way it works? That will be a disappointing realization, will it not? You're born into a family. And irrespective of your work, you receive the inheritance. You're adopted into a family. And irrespective of your work, you receive an inheritance. It's no mistaking that Jesus says things like, unless a man is born again, and he means spiritually, he will never see the kingdom of heaven. He won't get a seat at the table. Paul comes along and says, let me tell you something, like through faith in Jesus, who has shed his blood to cover over all of our sin, to remove all of the barriers between us and God that we've erected. Here's the thing. You're adopted into the family of God. He's not offering you a job. He's saying, come on, sit down. I have an inheritance for you. And it's amazing. And if you want to know where joy is found, it's not in the far country. It's here. 
So are you a servant of God or are you one of his children? Or Where are you at in terms of how you're relating to God in this moment? Because he has so much more for you than just being a servant. And then secondly, what if anything is keeping you from becoming a child of God? Because God in the person of Jesus Christ ran the gauntlet literally of the mob for you. He was spit upon, he was slandered, he was insulted, he was humiliated, he was stripped naked publicly, he was beaten. And as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one whose body and blood become our feast of faith, he was crucified in your place that his blood might cover over all of your sin, everything between you and the household of God, between you and the Father of God. And what does God do? He's like, the blood's been shed. Come on in. And all you have to do is by faith say, yeah, the blood's been shed. And I am forgiven. No matter who I am and what I've done. And then enter in. What keeps you? Look, if you're not a believer in Jesus, after the service, there'll be a few of us up here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you, try to answer your questions. I don't know that we have all the answers. Kind of the pressure when you're the pastor, you know. I love that. I'm in a group. Oh, you'll know where this verse is in the Bible. That guarantees I won't. You know what I mean? Like, if you don't put me on the spot, I know. Otherwise, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I got to go to the bathroom. Like, let us meet with you. Let us pray with you. And if you're just kind of going, all right, look, I'm, I'm willing to consider it. Seven o'clock on Thursday night, right in here. It's the place to consider it. Really, it is absolutely wonderful and it's fun. Come and take the journey with us. Who is Jesus? Perfect topic. So God wants you as his servant and not his, all right, I'm sorry. God wants you as his son or daughter and not his servant. No matter who you are or what you've done, will you come to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you will accept us as nothing less than your children. Lord, we praise you for all that that implies. We thank you for the one who has come and as the Lamb of God shed his blood that we might be forgiven, thoroughly washed and made clean and invited at the cost of his life to receive a seat at your table that he has purchased and that none of our efforts, no matter how diligent and obedient they are, could ever buy. We can't buy our way into your family and we don't have to. Jesus has purchased our way into the family and you offer it as a free gift. And so give us faith to receive that gift today. And Lord, if we have been relating to you more like a servant than as a son, I pray that you would reveal that to us in this moment, that you would unearth whatever bitterness we have in our heart and, and whatever, I don't know, negative emotions or resentments that we might have, God, toward you. And because we feel like we deserve better, because I guess we think we've earned more. Wash that away and receive us in your embrace. By your spirit, assure us that we are yours. And let us find our rest in you. Lord, you are altogether good. Your love, as we sang, is, I guess, in some sense, reckless, overwhelming, overpowering. Wrap us up in that. Let us know and experience that. And then let us serve you in love. And let us serve you out of devotion. 
Let us pour out our lives in gratitude for you. Let us have passion for you and your mission. Serving you as sons and daughters, freely entering and going in and out of your house. And that security and that safety and that relief and in that joy. Do that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.